This is a production of WEDU-PBS, Tampa, St. Petersburg, Sarasota. Coming up next on WEDU, Governor DeSantis suspends his presidential campaign and returns to Tallahassee. Whether or not abortion rights will be on the ballot this year is now in the hands of the Florida Supreme Court. There's an effort to roll back child labor protections in Florida, and big business tries to reduce some workers' wages here in Florida. All this and more right now on Florida This Week. Welcome back. Joining us on the panel this week, Paula Dockery is a former state senator and a former state representative and a former Republican. Amy Weintraub is the Reproductive Rights Program Director for Progress Florida. Travis Horn is the president and CEO of Bullhorn Communications and a Republican. And Stanley Gray is the president and CEO of the Hillsborough County Urban League and is not currently affiliated with a political party. So nice to have you all in the studio. Great to see you. Excited Good to be back. back. Well, coming off a disappointing showing in the Iowa caucuses, Governor Ron DeSantis suspended his presidential campaign and returned to Florida. As the Tampa Bay Times reported, lawmakers and lobbyists are waiting to see which version of the governor they're going to get. Will he be subservient to former President Trump and his many allies in Tallahassee? Will he come up with a bold new list of policy objectives? Will the governor, who still has three years left on his final term, face a less compliant Republican majority in the state legislature? DeSantis is already showing Floridians and legislative leaders that he intends to wield the full power of his office in the time he has left. Within 24 hours of suspending his campaign, DeSantis held back-to-back -back meetings and calls with legislative staff, chimed in on national border security issues, and reminded lawmakers that he is still willing to use his veto power. On Monday, DeSantis sank a GOP-led effort to use Florida taxpayer money to pay off Donald Trump's legal expenses. The show of force was seen by some of his allies as an indication that the governor is again taking charge in Tallahassee. And Paul, Matt Dixon and the NBC News crew came up with this list of missteps by the DeSantis campaign. I want to ask you about them. Uh, DeSantis burned through money on staff way too early and then used a lot of money to do private air travel. There was infighting with the Never Back Down Super PAC and a great deal of that staff had turnovers. He moved too far to the right, scared off some country club conservatives who are also often big donors, and he failed to build a grassroots small donor base. So much of his massive financial halls were maxed out donations from wealthy donors. That's what NBC News says. What, what do you think? What, was, what were the problems with the DeSantis campaign? Yeah, no, I think those were all valid. Um, and the problem with relying on those big donors is when they turn on you, there goes a lot of your money. Um, to the to the question of um, what's he how is he going to govern now we've seen five years of him and even though a year of that or a little more than a year of that was on the campaign trail for uh, president it, he you know he has his own ideology and it's pretty far right and it's a lot of it has to do with um, culture issues and I think he's going to fall right back into the the culture war frame that he was in before he mm -hmm. took off for Iowa. Travis, yeah. I, I want to put up a list of, of uh, allies of DeSantis, House Speaker right. Paul Renner, Senate President 
Kathleen Pasadomo, State Senator Blaze Angolia. These are some right. of the, the big name Republicans up there in Tallahassee and around the state who lean toward DeSantis. Those that lean toward Trump, State CFO Jimmy Petronas, State Senator Joe Gruters, Congressman Matt Gates, State Representative Randy Fine, campaign consultant Susie Wiles, and Agriculture Commissioner Wilton Simpson. Right. So, I mean, well. there were a lot of people in, in members of Congress, for instance, who were Republicans, right. who endorsed Trump and not DeSantis. Right. How strong are the allies of DeSantis, uh, and how... how <laughs> we're gonna find <laughs> out. You know, I thought, was, I thought his message would resonate, some of the far-right stuff would resonate better in Iowa. It turns out it did about as well as my diet's been going, which is not to say, <laughs> to say not very well. Um, he, he just uh, never seen the game traction out there, and you know, uh, it's a long ways out there, so you gotta travel out there somehow. I don't know, I don't know about the private air travel. too. He, you know. You know, it's Ronald Reagan bonded with the people. He was the great communicator, and I'm not sure, I mean, I have seen every candidate I've ever seen get better, okay? I've seen some pretty poor announcements, and uh, candidates get better on the stump. He, he has gotten better over the years. He has, I think he's gotten better connecting with people, and, it, me, he won me over. I really wasn't a huge uh, a fan early on, uh, given some, you know, what I guess his personality, you know, and the way they interact with people. But he's he's really, I mean, he's, he's a hard worker. He's going to be back in there. He's in Osceola County right now at an event. He was in the um, Everglades on Thursday. Yeah, so so he's, he's right back at work. What about Paula's point that he's liable to concentrate on cultural issues, bring out the, you know, Florida's the state where woke goes to die, bring out that phrase again? I think maybe those cultural issues were an eye towards the primary for the presidency. And so uh, there's some some real nuts and bolts issues that probably need to be addressed with regard to transportation and taxation and, and, and our state and running our state. So hopefully he'll dig down in the weeds and get into some of those issues and we can really address some of those things that I think maybe haven't been on the front burner for, for a little too long. Stanley, what, where, where do you think the governor's gonna head? I mean, during his state of the state message, he really didn't offer any new initiatives. He wanted to, he, he said, look, we've done really great the last four years of my... I think that there's two Ron DeSantis's. I think there's two different people. When he first took office, I thought that he was really gonna govern the whole state. And then I think when he decided to run for president, I think he became ultra right. I think that he started with these cultural issues, everything against equity and equality. I think his real big problem was is that he was running against somebody who does the same thing. So when it comes down to it, you're comparing a Cadillac against an Oldsmobile, and there, the Delta wasn't enough, so, so that's the reason why he finished where he did. Mm -hmm. Amy, uh, Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, said that uh, when DeSantis this week stepped down and suspended his campaign. He was saving himself for the next presidential election. And Newsom thought that this was a smart thing for DeSantis to do. To step down? Yeah. Well, I think it, uh, it was an obvious step. It was an easy decision for him. He didn't have, there was no path forward. But I'll tell you, I was in Tallahassee this week and the whole complex is full of anxiety. I heard staffers bemoaning openly about his return and what, and what the future weeks hold. And the culture wars, I'm afraid they're not over. I mean, we see legislation that legislators themselves are presenting that uh, deepen that um, attack on those who are, are, are most at the margins of our society already. So we are absolutely bracing ourselves for more book bans and more you know, uh, hit downs on our trans Floridians and more, we see plenty more re, uh, attacks on reproductive freedom in the bills that have been presented. And we certainly expect that DeSantis is gonna support and, and, and actually try to advance his own agenda along these lines. Mm -hmm. 
Stanley, you were going to say something? Well, I don't think that, that his, his political aspirations upwards are over. Uh, I think that he's going to really try to, like, uh, not induce, but I think he's going to amplify his brand. And so I would agree with you very much because he's going to try to use those things when he runs and president, you know, like in, in, in the years to come. Amplify. So I, I, I don't know about amplify his brand. I will say I believe the governor is is a true conservative and he actually believes what he's out there doing. And when he makes an appointment to the judiciary, as an example, I know that he grills those appointees in his office and that he is not taking any of that lightly. And if they think you're not uh, a real conservative, you're going to have a problem getting appointed. Yeah, but uh, one, one of Gavin Newsom's points was that uh, that the governor would lose the Florida primary in March if he continued his race. But I'm wondering, how far does the anti-woke campaign, how far do the culture war issues propel DeSantis if he's waiting for 2028? <laughs> I, I, I agree with Gavin Newsom that <clears throat> getting out of the race um, might be the right thing for him to do if he has political aspirations. But I think he damaged himself so much during this race that he doesn't have a bright political future. Okay, we'll, we'll see if he shows up on Fox News a lot. Again, I think there was a smart re re uh, reason for him to drop out for one thing. One of the things that he said against the candidate from South Carolina, he says, well, how can you be a viable candidate if you lose your own state? Truth of the matter is he would have lost the state sure. of Florida. Mm -hmm. That's one of the reasons why I think he dropped out. Of He's it. also out of money and his donor base was drying out. I think okay. he's about to lose South Carolina too. So. All right, well this past week both pro-choice and anti-abortion groups marked the anniversary of Roe v. Wade, the 1973 Supreme Court decision legalizing abortion in the U.S. There were marches across the country and in St. Petersburg. Roe was overturned by the new Trump-appointed conservative majority on the U.S. Supreme Court. Now abortion rights groups have gathered enough signatures on petitions to put preservation of abortion access on the Florida ballot this November. The state Supreme Court will review the ballot language next month on February 7th to decide whether voters will have a chance to weigh in. The amendment, sponsored by Floridians Protecting Freedom, is meant to limit government interference with abortion, banning or striking down any Florida law that prohibits, penalizes, delays, or restricts abortion before viability or when necessary to protect the patient's health, as determined by the patient's health care provider. Amy, th th you're on the pro-choice side. Uh, do you have any faith in the Florida Supreme Court? Do you think that they're going to allow this measure to go on the ballot, given the makeup, the conservative makeup of the Florida Supreme Court? Well, just remember that what they're deciding is not whether or not they agree with what with the, the essence of the ballot initiative. It's, it's simply, does the, uh, the language cover one issue. Is it understandable and readable that most Floridians can can read it and understand it? And is it within a certain number of, of words and uh, doesn't go over the maximum number of words? That's, that's really all they need to, to figure out. And we believe uh, we worked really hard for a year, did lots of research, lots uh, and involved many, many um, legal scholars, constitutional experts, et cetera, to make sure that we hit those marks. And so we have really, really strong confidence 
And our legal team is, is awesome and they're fully prepared to defend it in oral arguments on February 7th. So um, yeah, we believe that they will they will see that it meets those those marks and, mm -hmm. and, and it will be on the ballot. Travis, do you think the uh, Florida Supreme Court is likely to approve the language? I think they're likely to approve it. I think, look, we have a mechanism in place in, in Florida and every other state in the union to allow people to put things on the ballot, whether we agree with them or not. And so I think, I think it'll make it to the ballot and I think Floridians will get a chance to weigh in on it. And, and Paula, what do you think that'll do to turn out? What do you think that'll do to, you know, the, the 2024 November election? Yeah, interestingly, uh, polling shows that not only are there over 60% of the voters who um, agree with the ballot initiative, but over 50% of Republican voters. So I think it's going to increase voter turnout, particularly among those who, who want to see this pass. Um, so I think that's another reason why I'm a little nervous about what the Supreme Court is going to do, because Amy is 100% correct that they're supposed to be limited to those two tests. But once it gets before a very, very, very conservative uh, Florida Supreme Court, who knows what's going to go on. We remember back to the solar amendment, that was as confusing as can be, and they let that on the ballot. Um, with I think people. the fact that so few Republicans, if, if your numbers are correct, the 50% metric for Republicans in support of the measure. 53. 53. So I, I think that makes it a little less contentious and may not have some of the coattail effects that, that some folks on the left hope for whenever they see these initiatives placed on the ballot. So I'll be looking at that. I hope that's, right. yeah. that's I think it's just going to be one of those things that Floridians get a chance to vote on. When, when it comes to coattails, Amy, what are you seeing? Are you seeing more young people fired up over the, the issue of pro-choice? The number of people who are coming out in support of the ballot measure, it has been an astounding thing. On the, in the field, when I'm, I've been out in downtown St. Pete on the beaches, et cetera, collecting uh, the petition forms, the number of Republicans who are easy, eager to sign, the number of young people, the number of seniors, the number of males who are eager to sign. Um, people want government out of their personal health care decisions and, and uh, including, including decisions around pregnancy. And so, yeah, it's a winner. It's definitely a winner. Okay. Well, a bill that would loosen work restrictions and allow 16 and 17 year olds to work more hours is headed for a full vote on the Florida House floor. HB 49 passed the Florida Commerce Committee on Tuesday, its last stop before going to the full house. It passed 13 to 5, largely along party lines, with Democrats against it. The bill could allow employers to hire high school students to work overnight and work more than 30 hours a week during the school year. HB 49 was filed by Republican Representative Linda Cheney of St. Petersburg Beach. It would not only allow companies to put minors ages 16 and 17 on night shifts, but it would also give them the authority to determine how late the student works, regardless of how dangerous the work is. Nearly a million searches have been performed. How can I get a job as a teen? They want to work, but these restrictions discourage employers from hiring them. This bill gets government out of their way to choose the path that's best for them and their families. But this bill is not about youth freedom to work, it's about corporate freedom to exploit. 
The bill also features language that would allow employers to treat minors as adults under labor laws. It would also block counties and municipal governments from enforcing restrictions on underage employees. If signed into law, Florida would become the latest state to pass major legislation weakening child labor laws after Arkansas, Iowa, New Jersey, and New Hampshire. So, Travis, is Linda Cheney right? Are there too many restrictions on employers? And that's 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 different questions. making it hard, making it hard to hire 16 and 17 year olds. Well, there are too many restrictions on employers. I'm not I'm not convinced yet that this is one of them. But I I am intrigued by this whole whole um, discussion. And, you know, I remember we had to get work permits to work certain hours when I was a kid in school. I was in work program, though, and certain certainly new kids who were on a vocational track, who were not on a college track and who probably could work more hours. I did know some folks who, who were emancipated who wanted to work more hours and couldn't. So I don't this actually, I do know this legislation doesn't take us outside the federal. There's still federal regulations that prohibit, you know, child labor uh, to the extreme. And I certainly know we don't have any coal mines in Florida. We're not gonna see kids out there breaking big rocks and little rocks uh, in, in the hot summer sun for, for, you know, days on end. Three Democrats voted in the committee to support this bill. One right. of the Democrats, Susan Valdez of Tampa said, not entirely with it, but I think it can change for the better by the time it gets to the floor. Right. It'll be interesting to see how it, how it evolves. And I, I, this isn't one that, that is a big red flag for me, and I have a lot of big concerns about. Yeah. Uh, Stanley, is there a big red flag for you? Do you for, think this opens me, the door to exploitation of children? I, I do. And to me, I, I kind of go back looking at this from a historical vantage point. You know, why did we have child labor laws, okay? Because everybody knows what's going to happen is that the jobs that no one else wants are going to be occupied by these children. And uh, let's, just, let's just look at this, okay? You go to school for eight hours, all right? And then you're gonna work for eight hours at night? You, you can't convince me that that's not gonna impact kids' grades. But the worst thing about that is it's also gonna impact their, their destination. They're gonna probably exclude themselves from, from college or even trade uh, opportunities. They're gonna end up in menial jobs. And I'll bet you if this passes, when you go 20 years and you're gonna do statistical analysis of this, you're going to find out that these kids took themselves out of the quote-unquote living wage uh, population. And I really believe that. Amy, what, what do you think about the bill? Who are the, who are the kids that Stanley's talking about? The kids are kids from migrant families and from families with low incomes. They are the ones who are going to be exploited by this. And, um, you know, we need, in Florida, we need every child to have a quality education. We need them to be able to arrive at school ready to learn. Having worked overnight the night before is not, is not gonna lend to that. And a lot of teachers say kids are falling asleep at school and, and distracted. Working all night isn't gonna help. Yeah, all right. I fell asleep in school. <laughs> in related news, a bill in the legislature meant to stop working Floridians from getting higher pay or better benefits was given to lawmakers by the Florida Chamber of Commerce, a big business lobbying group that represents major employers like Publix, Bank of America, and Walt Disney World, according to emails obtained in a public records request from the investigative website Seeking Rents. The email suggests the chamber had help writing the wages and benefits bill from a billionaire-backed think tank called the Foundation for Government Accountability. That's the same organization that wrote the bill to weaken Florida's child labor laws. The wages and benefits bill is House Bill 433. It began as an attempt to stop cities and counties across Florida from passing heat protection ordinances. Those are local laws that would require employers to provide safety measures like cool drinking water and periodic breaks to roofers, farm workers, and others 
who work outdoors in extreme heat. But a few weeks after the bill was filed, the Republican-controlled Florida House of Representatives expanded the legislation. In addition to stopping local heat protection laws, the new version of the bill would also erase living wage ordinances that have been adopted in many of Florida's big cities and urban counties. Those ordinances typically require companies that receive local government contracts to pay their employees a few dollars more than the statewide minimum wage, which is currently $12 an hour. The cities of St. Petersburg, Orlando, and Gainesville are among the communities that have passed living wage laws for contractors. So, Stanley, this gets to the point, who should control? Should local communities control their wage ordinances, uh, local wages, or should Tallahassee control local wages? It gets back to this big question about preemption of local ordinances. Two points before I answer your question. One is, I am a humanistic capitalist. And two is, is that the economic conditions vary in our state. And I think that it's, it's totally wrong for someone to consider that you can only pay X for a job when, when that job is different, has different costs related to where you live in this state. Transportation, insurance, and we can just go down a whole list. I think it's totally wrong. Hmm. And, and I think that this is another example to me of the, of the party that's supposed to be less government being more government and excuse me, the government, and I think it's totally wrong. Well, hold on, dude. I, I, again, like I said, I'm, I'm a government, the governor's least, governor's best Republican, okay? I agree with you on that premise. But who's, so if we're enacting, so are you saying you're in favor of living wages? Is that, is that correct, Sam? I'm saying that living wages are different by where you live. Okay, let, I'll give you a good example, okay? Uh, when I came here 21 years ago, I decided I wanted to get in the apartment business, okay? It was too expensive for me to enter, enter into that in Hillsborough County. So I did my work in Pinellas County. Now, how did I figure that out? I looked at all the costs related. I, I looked at how I could rent, and then I looked at you know how much I would have to be pay on my burden. So what I'm saying is if you came out and said that you have to pay X for, for your repair person, I'm saying that that would have impeded my ability to operate well, in that county. So we agree then, right? So no, no living wage. I mean, this is the notion, I mean, look, inflation is out of control, right? I get it. No one, there's, I don't know what a living wage is. I mean, it's, how, how do you determine but, that? You know, you, you just said inflation's out of control. Let's, let's kind of, one of the problems I think is that we don't really understand how inflation occurs, okay? If you have a strong dollar, you're going to have more imports, and guess what comes along with that? Inflation. Okay, they go hand in hand. I'm not an economist, but I do know that. This question of local preemption. Right, so, right. so if 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 St. Petersburg says we want to pay government contractors, we want to make them pay their employees two dollars more, should Tallahassee say to St. Petersburg, you can't do that? With so many, I mean, Paula, with so I many, with no. so many, you, you say no. no. I say no. Yeah. No, we, you know, it used to be that my former party, the Republican Party, said that uh, local government should be making these kind of decisions. The government that that governs best is the one that's the most local. And and ever in the last decade, we just keep chipping away, chipping away, chipping away at all these local government decisions. And I think it's wrong. And I think the Republicans ought to go back to what they used to believe in, which is letting local governments decide what's best for their communities. Our legislature oversees 67 counties and all the cities and, and, and municipalities in those counties. And so I, I don't know that living wage, I mean, how, how does that, you know, how are we going to, how are we going to work across all these jurisdictions and, and hey, can, can I how are these a, companies that are, they're statewide analogy. companies, how are they going to? I'd like to give you an analogy, yeah. okay? Why should your house rules have to adapt the house rules of the Gray family? 
shouldn't have to. But the government is trying to do that with us, with our communities. Yeah. It's wrong. Okay. Well, before we go, what other news stories should we be paying attention to? Paula Dockery, let's start with you. You're another big story. So this week there was a lot of talk about the um, state legislature wanting to use state, our tech, state tax dollars up to $5 million to help um, supposed billionaire Donald Trump with his legal fees. And it got a lot of negative press, and then when uh, Governor DeSantis came home, he said, you know, we're not going to do that. I'm going to veto it. The bill's been withdrawn. I know from 16 years in the legislature that just because something goes away does not mean it doesn't come back. There's still a lot of session left. Be, uh, be on the lookout. It could find its way onto some other bill that slips by. So I think it's a travesty to even consider using state taxpayer dollars to pay for anybody's legal fees, let alone somebody who is being accused of some very serious crimes. All right. Amy, your other big story? Well. The ballot initiative is not the only case that the Supreme Court is currently considering that has to do with abortion. The other is their consideration of the 15-week abortion ban that was passed two years ago by the legislature and signed into law. They're trying to figure out, does the privacy clause in our state constitution cover that or not? Does it, does it make it illegal? And we don't expect them to decide in our, in, 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 on the favor of reproductive freedom. And when that happens, it will actually trigger the six-week abortion ban that was passed just last year to go into effect. And so at that point, we'll have a public health crisis in Florida and across the Southeast. And so watch the news on that. That decision could come out literally any day. All right, Travis, you're on the big story. Since we're all in favor of local control, we have a government, we have a local government here with uh, a real problem in Ybor City. Our, it's a real gem, our historic district, but we've had you know, criminal activity continue uh, in the way of you know, violent crimes, shootings. And so will our mayor's office uh, act and will our city council get that in hand? And, you know, are they seeing it across the state? Is that a statewide issue or is that just something here locally that we need to get a handle on? And that issue of imposing a curfew on young people in Ybor City comes up before the city council in a few weeks. Yep, I favor right. it. All right. Stanley, your other big story. Why is it okay for a presidential candidate to tell members of Congress do not solve a problem that Congress should have been solving years ago? And why is it okay for that person to basically help st states incur additional cost. I think that that's something that needs to be talked about. All right, well, thank you all for a great show. Travis Horn, Paula Dockery, Amy Weintraub, and Stanley Gray, thank you. Great to see you. Thank you. Great to see you. Thank you for watching. Send us your comments at ftw.wedu.org and like us on Facebook. You can view this and past shows online at wedu.org or on the PBS app. Florida This Week is now available as a podcast. And from all of us here at WEDU, have a great weekend and have a good time if you're going to the Gasparilla Parade.